You're listening to City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. We're going to continue in... The text this morning, right where we left off last week, and one of the things that has kept coming up, if you've been paying attention over the last at least couple of weeks, is how different Jesus is from everyone else. He's unlike anyone, isn't he? Beginning with his birth, which Mark doesn't even cover in Mark's gospel, uh, Luke does a a fine job of of sort of giving a uh, order to how his birth happened, but even beginning with his birth, he is unlike anyone. He's born of a virgin, his birth is announced by the angels, he's born in an unusual place, he's visited by unusual guests, he's just an unusual individual, he's unlike anyone else. Mark's gospel, of course, began with... Uh, Jesus' story at his baptism, and even his baptism was unique. I mean, coming out of the water, a voice of the Heavenly Father can be heard saying, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit, remember, descends on him like a dove. He's, he's unlike anyone. And he can do th- things that normal people can't do. I mean, he's able to fast from food and water for 40 days. Normal people can't do that. He calls unusual people to follow him. Fishermen, tax collectors, sinners, demon-possessed people. Normal rabbis don't do this. He teaches the scripture unlike anyone else. Mark 1.22, it says that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority. He can cast out demons in a way that no one else can. Mark 1.27, they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Normal people can't do that. He heals the sick, he touches lepers, he stands out in a crowd, he is unlike anyone else. This morning, As we continue in Mark chapter 2, what we're going to discover is that it's not only Jesus who stands out in a crowd, but also those who follow Jesus. The early disciples did certain things. Sometimes they didn't do certain things that other normal people were doing, and that got people's attention. People started to take note of Jesus' followers. They're different They do strange things. They abstain from normal things. What is going on with them? And and this is common today as well. You'll notice that Christians often look the same as other people. We dress similarly. We speak the same language as the culture we exist in most of the times. We adopt a lot of the same cultural customs. And yet, there are some practices that Christians participate in that the world just thinks are kind of weird. And there are certain things that Christians abstain from that set us apart from everyone else. And this has been happening for a very long time. If you know me well, you know that I love history. I love history. And I want you to listen to this description of Christians and tell me how applicable this is to us today as well. It says, the difference between Christians and the rest of mankind is not a matter of nationality or language or customs. Christians do not live in separate cities of their own, nor do they speak any special dialect, nor do they practice any eccentric way of life. They pass their lives in whatever township each man's lot has determined, domestic or foreign, and they conform to ordinary local usage in their clothing, diet, and other habits. Nevertheless, 
The organization of their community does exhibit some features that are remarkable and even surprising. For instance, though they are residents at home in their own countries, their behavior is more like transients. Though destiny has placed them here in the flesh, they do not live after the flesh. Their days are passed on earth, but their citizenship is above in the heavens. They obey prescribed laws, but in their own private lives, they transcend them. They show love to all men, and all men persecute them. They are misunderstood and condemned. Yet by suffering death, they are quickened into life. They are poor, yet making many rich, lacking all things, yet having all things in abundance. They repay curses with blessings and abuse with courtesy for the good they do. They suffer as evildoers. I mean, that sounds relevant as it could be for us today, or or at least it should be relevant for Christians for us today. This was written in AD 130, nearly 2,000 years ago. This is in a fragment that is pulled from one of the lesser known works of church history called the Epistle to Diognetus. Diognetus was a Roman official, a non-Christian, and the letter was written to him to explain the vast differences between Christians and Judaism. We don't know who wrote it. We, some have attributed to Justin Martyr, others to Athenagoras. We're not sure who actually penned it. Whoever it was, they were convinced that Christians, although similar to other people, were uniquely different as well. While they look the same and they participate in a lot of the same activities, they also sometimes do and don't do things that make them stand out in a crowd. And that is exactly what we find in our text this morning in Mark chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. What makes us different? That's the question that I want us to ask this morning. As believers in Jesus Christ, what makes us different? We pick up where we left off last week, verse 18. It says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. People came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't? So immediately, there there is a disparity between the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees and the disciples of Jesus. Both the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees, it says, were fasting. Very normal, common practice for this day. And yet, the followers of Jesus are not. And, and, And who notices this, by the way? It says the people. This is ordinary, I mean, I think this is important detail. Ordinary people. It wasn't the religious leaders who noticed it. It wasn't people skilled in theology. It just was the crowds, the people, normal, everyday individuals. Now, to really understand why this would have been such a big deal for Jesus' disciples not to fast when everyone else was, we need to understand the significance of fasting from an Old Testament perspective. Fasting is not an often talked about practice within evangelical circles today, especially in the West, especially in 2023. We sort of We sort of conveniently, especially in Baptist circles, we sort of conveniently forget the Bible mentions it, right? Whenever you hear people talking about fasting, someone's like, yeah, I mean, I I intermittent fast starting last week. I feel great and feel really good, right? Not the same thing. Fasting is not a popular topic of discussion in our context today. It was a very prominent practice in the ancient Near Eastern culture and for a lot of reasons. Let me walk through some of these for you. So it's important to start with this, that there was one day a year where you were required 
to fast as a Jewish person. And that was on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. One day that you're required by the Old Testament to fast. Leviticus chapter 23 verses 26 through 32 specifies how the people of God were to treat this day. They were to, one of the requirements it says was to afflict the body, which is a very interesting way of communicating fasting, but this is how you would communicate it. You afflict the body. The Levites, the priests, they're dealt with earlier in Leviticus and how they are to handle the day of atonement. They go through this uh, ritual cleansing. The high priest Aaron and the other high priest following him would go through a, a very specific cleansing. They would put on special garments before they entered into the Holy of Holies in the innermost part of the temple. This was only done once a year. It was a significant day where atonement was made for sin. In 23, of Leviticus 23, the people are told how they are to handle this day. And they are to fully fast from food and water for 24 hours during that entire time as a way of preparing for this very uh, heavy, heavy day of atonement for sin. It's the only day it's required in the Old Testament. But there were other reasons people fasted in the, in the Old Testament. So for example, sometimes you would fast to mourn national tragedy. Uh, so when the temple was destroyed by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar, we learn uh, several years after that, Zechariah, the minor prophet writes in, in Zechariah 3, uh, verse seven, chapter seven, verses three and four, that for many years, it says, the people would fast on the fifth month of the year to lament or mourn what had happened to the temple. So every May, probably not called May, but for us, May, this is what they did. They would fast for the entire month uh, for specific parts of the day in mourning over this national tragedy. The temple, I mean, the temple was central to Judaism. When it was destroyed, it was a, I mean, it shattered the people. It shattered everything that they thought they knew about how God was going to bless them and work through them. Of course, God continues to be faithful to them, but it was a major deal. So sometimes you would fast to express devastation. Sometimes it was to ask for protection. So in Ezra 8, 21 through 23, uh, Ezra the scribe calls for all of the people to prepare on this journey from Babylon to Israel. Uh, Ezra takes place during the time of exile, right at the end of exile. He is released 60 years after Zerubbabel is released by the Persian king Cyrus. He is sent back by Artaxerxes to take another wave of people back to Jerusalem, but it's a 900-mile trip. Don't think 900 miles today like in a van, right? This would have taken months. This would have been a dangerous, overwhelming trip. And so he calls on all of the people who are going to go on the journey to fast and pray for protection. During the same time, uh, we see other people fasting for provision. So another man, Nehemiah, uh, receives word. He's also living in Babylon. He receives word from Jewish people who have just gotten back from Jerusalem that the gates of Jerusalem have been burned and that the wall of Jerusalem had been destroyed. And so in Nehemiah 1.4, he begins to pray and fast. He is devastated by this news because that means the people that Ezra has just taken back to the land, they're vulnerable to attack. And, and, and this breaks his heart. So he prays and he fasts to ask God for provision that King Artaxerxes would give him all the materials he needed and the clearance to go back to Jerusalem, to rebuild the wall, to make Jerusalem great again. Um, this is sometimes an expression of mourning, 
Sometimes it's a petition for protection or provision. Sometimes it's just a self-imposed personal fast for personal reasons. So uh, David fasts when his infant son is sick in 2 Samuel 12, 16. Nineveh, the entire pagan country, fasts when they are convicted by their sin from the prophet Jonah. This is in Jonah chapter 3. There's a lot of reasons why people would have fasted in the Old Testament. For our purposes this morning in this text in Mark 2, it is the last one that is almost certainly at play. Personal, uh, self-imposed fast for personal reasons. It's not the Day of Atonement, we know that. So that there wasn't a required fast from the people. There was no national tragedy happening at this time. Uh, that doesn't happen until 70 AD, next real big, big one. Uh, there's no real need for protection. They're living in Jerusalem at this time. They're living under relatively good conditions. Of course, they don't like Roman rule, but things are peaceful for the most part. They've been kind of left alone to do what they want to do. And so there was no need for protection or provision. It is likely that both John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples were fasting for personal, albeit very different, reasons. So for John's disciples... John's disciples were likely fasting because at this point, John had almost certainly been arrested and maybe even martyred at this point. Uh, Mark is not going to cover his death until chapter 6 in a flashback scenario. But we know chronologically that he was probably at least arrested by this moment. And so John's disciples might have been fasting in lament or mourning over the loss of their beloved leader. The Pharisees fasted for very different reasons. So the Pharisees fasted twice a week every week, and it was a form of a sort of self-righteous piety. They fasted, in other words, to receive attention. They wanted to be seen as spiritual people, very spiritual people, very, you know, elite spiritual people. You can imagine eating in a public place and, and sitting down at a table and a Pharisee sitting down next to you and you have your slice of pizza and they don't have any food in front of you or in front of them. And so you being the good Christian, you're like, hey, why don't you have some of my pizza? I have more than enough. And they would go, oh, no, thank you. I'm fasting today. <laughs> right? Kind of a flex on you. Make you feel a little less spiritual than they are. You know, man doesn't live on pizza alone, but every word of God. So I'm fasting today. Right. So the Bible says they did this twice a week. Luke 18, 12, twice a week. We know from historical documents outside of the Bible that they practiced this fasting every Monday and Thursday, which, I mean, I personally think is strategy a little bit, that they chose Monday and Thursday and not Tuesday when Taco Tuesday happens, because it's a terrible day to fast, right? They were obviously foodies. All of this forms the context behind what is happening in Mark chapter 2. The people were fasting regularly for a variety of reasons, and so naturally, when people noticed that the disciples of Jesus weren't doing this, it raised questions, right? Why aren't they fasting? What's wrong with them? Everyone does this. What, what is going on? Jesus, the miracle worker, and they're not even fasting. And so Jesus answers, <clears throat> verse 19. And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guest fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast, Jesus says. So in true Jesus form, he answers their question with a question. How aggravating must this have been, <laughs> right? Now, what does he mean by this? He's just talking about a wedding and a, a bridegroom and what is happening here? What, what does he mean by this? He's, he's using a wedding celebration as an illustration to answer their question about why his disciples don't fast. And again, we need some historical context to understand the significance of what Jesus is communicating here. In the ancient world, 
a wedding did not occur on one day over the course of a few hours. So last weekend on Friday, we, Jessica and I dropped our kids off with some close family friends. We uh, drove to San Antonio. We got there that night. We woke up the next day. I performed a wedding at 5 p.m. in San Antonio, actually in Bernie, just outside of Bernie. And then by 6.30, we were back in the car, driving back home so we could be here for church on Sunday. We were in San Antonio for like less than 24 hours. We were at the wedding for about an hour and a half, and some of that included the reception. In the ancient world, a wedding took a week. It was seven days if the woman was a virgin. It was three days if the woman was a widow remarrying. Now, hold on. That sounds a little like a downgrade. Like, why does the poor widow not get the full treatment. She already had the full treatment. She's remarrying. These are days eight, nine, and 10. These are bonus days, right? <laughs> so weddings in the ancient world were a very big deal. It was a huge event. It was a huge celebration. People would come from all over the place, right? Because they loved the bride and groom. They wanted to celebrate. And man, it was a party. There was music. There was food. There was, there was Welch's grape juice. There was celebrating. There was excitement. There was joy. It was an incredible time. It was the most inappropriate time to fast. In fact, weddings were so highly regarded, culturally speaking, that people were permitted to skip fasting if they attended the wedding because it was unthinkable to fast at a wedding. It, would, it, would, it doesn't make sense. It's incompatible. It's inappropriate. Fasting is intense. It's gloomy. It's mournful. It's sad. Weddings are anything but that. No one wants you moping around with your sad face at a wedding, right? Weddings are full of life and celebration. You're tired because you haven't eaten or drink anything all day. So you were actually expected to abstain from fasting if you were the guest <clears throat> of the bridegroom. When Jesus says, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast, that's what he's talking about. They are full of joy. They can't fast. How could they do that? There's coming a day when they will. Verse 20, he says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. So it won't always be this way, but for now, while Jesus is with them, they cannot fast. It would be unimaginable. I want to pause here for a minute because I believe there's an application here for us, but it's probably a different application than what you might imagine. I want to ask the question, who are we in this story. Who are we in this story? Let me tell you who we're not. We're not the guests of the bridegroom. We're not the guests of the bridegroom. The early disciples were the guests of the bridegroom. We are not the guests of the bridegroom. Who are we? We're the bride. We're the bride of Christ. Ephesians 5, 22 through 31. Paul makes the connection between the husband and the wife and Christ and the church. The church is the bride of Christ, and Christ is the bridegroom. In other words, check this out. We don't get invited to celebrate for seven days and then go back to life as normal, fasting and doing all the other things we normally do. We live with the bridegroom for eternity, forever. Here's what that means. It means that if the guests of the bridegroom have joy and the presence of the bridegroom, how much more joy should the bride have in the presence of the bridegroom? If the early disciples' lives were marked with joy, how much more should our lives as Christ followers post-resurrection be marked by 
joy. And you might be thinking, well, but that was before Jesus was taken away. Uh, that's already happened. He, he was taken. He was beaten and he was crucified. Yes. And he rose again. This is the whole basis of our faith, the resurrection. And after the resurrection, what does he promise to us? That he will be with us always. Matthew 28, 20. Do you not, I'm sorry, I am with you always to the end of the age. I take that literally. I don't think Jesus is speaking metaphorically here. I don't think he's saying like figuratively speaking in heart and mind, I'm gonna be with you always in your memories. That's not what he's saying. No, in your body, the spirit of God, the presence of Jesus will indwell you for eternity. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You have the presence of God in you if you're a Christian. Listen to me. The bridegroom is with you. Not for a seven-day celebration, but for all of eternity. So this raises a question. Why should Christians fast? Why should Christians fast today? I'm going to submit to you that it is unnecessary. It's not wrong, so understand this. If you're someone who's like, I love to fast. First of all, who are you? <laughs> if you love to fast, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> it's not wrong to do it. I just think it kind of misses the point a little bit. And I'm gonna explain why. I think fasting is one of the most misunderstood practices in the church age because it confuses the old covenant with the new. There are all the reasons that people will fast today in the church age are derived from examples in the Old Testament. But how often is it mentioned in the New Testament? Spoiler, not a lot. Jesus talks about it here. He talks about it on the Sermon on the Mount when he's talking about, you know, when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites, don't be like the Pharisees who do it every Monday and Thursday and get attention for it. Do it in a manner where no one knows that you're fasting. He talks about by prayer and fasting, can you cast out only certain demons? But I'm gonna to submit to you that both of these examples along with here are contextually oriented within the old covenant. Jesus is not gonna to go to the cross the next day. It's gonna be a couple of years before that happens. He is speaking to his context in that moment. It's mentioned a couple of times in the book of Acts, which is very much a transitional period between covenants. We see that with other things as well, like uh, food laws and other practices that are, are people are kind of trying to get to the new covenant, but they're not quite there yet. After the book of Acts, it's never mentioned again, ever. Paul doesn't speak about it. John doesn't speak about it. Peter doesn't speak about it. It's not in Hebrews. It's not in Revelation. You don't ever hear it again in the New Testament. You would think that with the inclusion of Gentiles coming into the church, there would be some instruction or explanation for why we've been doing this for 2,000 years. There's nothing. You know why? Because as long as we have the bridegroom, we cannot fast. Fasting isn't wrong. Hear me say that. Don't feel bad if you're like, I, this is a part of kind of my spiritual disciplines. But I would have you consider why you're doing it. I would, ask, I would have you ask the question, why, why do I do this? Because it does not really make sense in the new covenant. You don't need to fast for the day of atonement. The day of atonement is over with. 
It happened, it's done. Jesus fulfilled that. That door is closed. Hebrews 10, 14, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. You don't need to fast for the day of atonement. The atonement has been made. You don't need to fast for provision either. Sometimes that's a thing. Like, well, I really need God to provide this thing in my life, and so I need to fast for it. Paul in Philippians 4.19 says, and my God will supply every need of yours, every need, according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. You have all you need in Christ. You have all you need in Christ Jesus. You don't need to fast for protection either. Paul in 2 Thessalonians 3.3 says, The Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you from the evil one. You have all the protection you could need in Christ. And by the way, if God decides to allow you to be persecuted and beaten and heaven forbid crucified, congratulations. You're now more like Jesus. We don't need to fast for provision, protection, atonement. You don't need to fast to convey a deep sense of guilt over your sin. What does the New Testament tell you to do to convey your sin? It just says confess it. First John 1.19, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sometimes fasting is done to intensify prayer right? I'm going to pray over this thing, and so I'm going to fast. But listen to me. You don't need to fast to intensify your prayer. Your prayers, understand this, what the Bible says, are interceded by Jesus and the Holy Spirit. When you pray, the Spirit of God and the Son of God are interceding on your behalf. Hebrews 7.25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Let me ask you this question, people of God, and I want you to really consider it and wrestle with it today. What can fasting accomplish for you that Christ cannot? Yeah. That's why Baptists are potluck people, not fasting people, right? It's just unnecessary. It is a holdover from the old covenant that we have a hard time letting go of because it's experiential, because it makes us feel something. You don't need, you will never be, understand this, you will never be closer to the presence of God than you are right now because he lives in you. He indwells you if you're a believer in Christ. It served a purpose in the old covenant. It was very important in the old covenant for a lot of reasons, but we're not in the old covenant, we're in the new covenant. We have the bridegroom with us now for eternity, permanently. And as Jesus said, we cannot fast while the bridegroom is with us. Now he follows this with two parables, which seem almost out of place until you realize what he's doing. These are actually the first two parables that Jesus is gonna tell in Mark's gospel. They're very short, they're very quick. They both communicate essentially the same thing. Read verses 21 and 22. It says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So let's unpack this for a moment. Parable number one deals with a new patch and an old garment. And like all of Jesus' parables, Jesus is going to use illustrations that were very familiar to his audience in order to communicate a single point. So we don't want to get wrapped up in all the details of parables when we go through them. Parables are simple, straight to the point illustrations to illustrate a central idea. 
This parable uses imagery of placing a new patch of cloth over presumably a hole in an old garment. So if you were someone that was at sea a lot, you would do this with sails if you had holes. You would never put a new patch over a hole in an old sail. You would never do this with clothing because Jesus says when you do that, when the garment is washed, the patch will shrink because it's new and it will tear an even bigger hole on the old garment, leaving it worse than it was when you started. In other words, it doesn't make sense to do this. It's self-defeating. It's an inappropriate solution to a problem. The new patch is incompatible with the old garment. The second parable does exactly the same thing, but with different elements. In this parable, Jesus imagines new unfermented wine in old wineskins. If you know anything about this process of fermentation, when wine goes through fermentation, it bubbles up and it expands. So you need new animal skins because new animal skins had some elasticity to them. So when you put wine in them, they would expand with the wine. But here's what would happen. Once that wine was used up, that animal skin would dry out and it would become very brittle. So if you try to put new wine into that old container, as it started to expand because it was brittle and dry, it would bust, ruining both the wine and the skin. So why is Jesus telling this parable here? What's going on here? These parables communicate two very important things. Number one, both of these parables, like the wedding illustration, describe the unnecessary self-defeating nature of fasting for Jesus' disciples. It doesn't make sense to do this because he's with them. The bridegroom is with him. It doesn't make sense to put new patches on old holes. It doesn't put, make sense to put new wine in old wineskins. In the same way that it would be inappropriate for a wedding guest to fast at a wedding, it would be inappropriate to put a new patch of cloth over an old garment. It's nonsensical and self-defeating. So it is for Jesus' disciples if they were to fast. But there's another reason why I believe he tells these particular parables. Jesus is alluding to the reality. And you've got to get this, because when you get this, again, Jesus makes a lot more sense in Mark's gospel and everywhere else, including in your life. Jesus is alluding to the reality that his entire ministry, everything he is saying, everything he is doing, his teaching, his miracles, all of it is different and new from what has been happening in Judaism. Jesus is the new patch. He is the new wine. And Judaism, along with Pharisees and the scribes and all of their traditions, are the old garment or the old wineskin that cannot possibly contain him. Jesus isn't the next chapter in Moses' law. He isn't an addendum to the Old Testament. He's not an upgrade. He's something altogether new. It's going to be very tempting for the people in this time to try to fit Jesus into a Jewish perspective in a way of doing things. And he's warning you, don't try to fit me in your scheme. Your scheme cannot possibly hold me. That should strike us to the core. Because this is exactly what we do as well today. In the church age, when you came to Christ, you had your life, 
You had a scheme. You had a system for how you do things. You had a way to think about the world around you, a framework, a worldview, lenses through which you saw things and, and evaluated things. And it is so easy when you come to faith in Jesus Christ to begin trying to figure out how Jesus fits into this. And what you need to understand is he won't fit into it. He isn't an upgrade. He will not fit in your scheme. He will not fit in your system. He explodes your system. Your system, your life cannot contain him. So when you come to Jesus, don't try to figure out how Jesus fits into your life. You abandon your life and you receive a new one. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's an upgraded version of your old self. No. He's a new creation. The old has died, Paul says. Behold, the new has come. You have died if you've come to Christ. You're not you anymore. Not the same you. You're an altogether different you. Galatians 2.20 says it this way. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Some of you need to hear this this morning. Stop trying to fit Jesus into your life. He doesn't want to fit in your life. He can't fit in your life. He's too big for your life. He explodes your life. You can't contain him in your life. But he can give you a new life when you're finally ready to let go of the old one. When you're finally ready to admit powerlessness over all the things that you've been trying to do, when you're like, I'm done trying to figure this out, everything I do and touch and it, it all gets ruined. Everything, nothing has worked out for me well. That's the moment when you are ready. That is the moment when you abandon the old, the old wineskin, the old garment, and you take on the new patch and the new wine. Folks, this is what makes us different. I asked that question in the beginning. What makes us different? This is what makes us different. What makes us different, simply put, here it is is that we have been made different. We are different. Christ has put away the old and made something new in you. And it is no longer you who lives, but him who lives through you. You're a new creature. You belong to a new kingdom. You have a new mailing address. You belong to a different covenant. You have the presence of the bridegroom with you always. So enough. Stop trying to make it work. It doesn't work. Not in your life, not in your system, not in your way. Abandon the old, take on the new. And enjoy the freedom that God gives you as you follow him into death and into resurrection. Pray with me. Father, we confess that, that there are times when we try to fit Jesus into what we are doing. And we confess that's wrong. It's unwise, it's nonsensical because he doesn't fit into what we are doing. And so God, would you give us the wisdom to know 
the areas of our lives where we have been guilty of this, to confess that to you and, and to begin moving towards truth, to abandon my way, to get out of the way, and to begin following the way. We rejoice, God, that when we pray, you hear us, that you are ever present with your people, that the ministry of your spirit never fails, that even when we have no words to pray, God, you intercede on our behalf. Help us rest in that. Help us rest in knowing that we have all that we need, that Christ is sufficient for us in all things. That we might have contentment and gratitude no matter what comes our way. Thank you for these people. Would you bless them richly? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. We have a movie after the third service at 4 p.m. today, The Blind. We would love to have you. There's still tickets available. We are selling concessions for a dollar each. So confirmed, it's a cheaper movie experience than if you went to the movie theater. All right, God bless you. We'll see you.